Welcome, I'm Linda McHenry, host of Taking the Mystery Out of Insurance. Thanks for joining me. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, 2020, and this is episode number eight, Legal Liability and the Pandemic. If you'd like more information about who I am, what I do, my books, YouTube channels, and podcasts, visit my website at lindamchenry.com. The podcast page also offers you the opportunity to submit questions for each week's Q&A section of the podcast or to request a guest spot. You might also want to check out my book, Taking the Mystery Out of Business, which discusses what I view as the nine fundamentals for professional success. You can find it on Amazon in paperback and as an ebook. Now let's talk about legal liability and the pandemic. Most individuals and businesses buy insurance because they're concerned about losing their property. Items such as cars, buildings, personal belongings, and business inventory. Other people and companies also buy insurance for the liability coverage it provides, but unfortunately, few understand how it works. Until now, no one has purchased an insurance policy and wondered, will my policy protect me if I'm sued for infecting another person with a contagious virus? Some policies do exclude liability for the spread of communicable diseases. And we'll be addressing how COVID-19 fits into place with respect to that exclusion in the future. But aside from the issue of policy exclusions, we need to focus on precisely how the liability section of an insurance policy works to figure out how it's going to work in a pandemic. Specifically, liability insurance pays for sums the insured individual or business is legally obligated to pay as damages because of bodily injury or property damage to which the insurance applies. The policy also states the insurer has the right and duty to defend the insured against any suit seeking those damages. Let's break the policy's insuring agreement down into simple terms. First, what does the term legally obligated to pay mean? It means the insured must be legally liable, and that's where matters get dicey. Only a court can determine legal liability, and the theory of liability used by the court is going to be based on the nature of the offense that was allegedly committed and that jurisdiction. The standards used to determine if a person is legally responsible for breaching a contract, for example, are different than those used to determine if a person is responsible for causing a car accident. And from state to state, views are different as well. California is known for viewing things differently than, let's say, New Hampshire or Montana will be. Most insurance matters involve torts, which are wrongful acts or infringements of another's right for which the law allows a person to file a lawsuit or seek compensation. In most cases, people are considered legally liable for causing injury or damage if they failed to behave in a way that was reasonably appropriate. In other words, they were negligent or careless, or they didn't pay attention to what they were doing and how their behavior might have harmful consequences. For an insured to be deemed legally liable in the context of an insurance claim, the party filing a claim must prove the elements of negligence. Depending upon the alleged wrongful act or failure to act and the judicial system governing the matter, anywhere from three to five elements of negligence will exist. The first is the fact that a duty must be owed. For example, if you're driving a car, you're supposed to drive at or below the speed limit and stop at red lights. Another element is a breach of a duty. So if you're speeding and you can't stop in time, you slam on your brakes and you fishtail through the intersection where the red light is. You breached your duty. Then the next element is a breach causes a loss. Well, when your car's spinning, let's say the right fender clips a bicyclist. All right, now you caused a loss. 
Another element is that the breach of duty has to be the proximate cause of a loss. Well, when your speeding car spins through that intersection, that's the first event in a chain of unbroken events that caused the bicyclist to wobble and fall onto the shoulder of the road. And then the final element would be that damages have to result from a loss. Well, when the bicyclist breaks her leg and her bicycle is destroyed, you now have violated all five elements of negligence. Now, when determining negligence, most insurers and judicial systems rely on certain things that are appropriate for the circumstance and, of course, in that state. So a car accident may involve five elements of negligence, but another claim may only involve three. So so there's those differences. The court's also going to look at the reasonable person standard to compare the actions of the accused with a theoretical individual, the reasonable person or the reasonably prudent person. That individual behaves in a legal and ethical manner and is someone who has the same level of knowledge and experience as the accused and is someone who's acting under the same circumstances. So how would a reasonably prudent person or a reasonable person behave? Well, in the example I just gave you, a reasonably prudent person wouldn't be speeding and would be able to stop in time to avoid going through the intersection when he or she saw the red light. Another reasonable person who's driving would make sure all children in the car are strapped into approved car seats. Why? Because doing otherwise might endanger the lives of the children and a reasonable person would understand that. A reasonable person would shovel the snowy sidewalk and spread ice melt afterward because failing to clear the sidewalk might cause another individual to trip, fall, and become injured. A reasonably prudent business owner would conduct references and perhaps a criminal background check before hiring certain employees. Essentially, a reasonable person exercises care, consideration, and concern for the outcome in any given situation. I mentioned earlier that insurance policies pay for the insured's legal liability and that legal liability can only be determined by a court. Well, some situations such as those I just discussed are clear cut in most insurance companies will pay damages for those claims without requiring a lawsuit to be filed and the court to actually render a legal liability judgment. But what's going to happen when a restaurant reopens after the COVID shutdown and patrons submit claims alleging they were infected by a coronavirus-infected weight person? Or when a similar claim is submitted to any business by any customer with the same allegation? The insurer will look at the elements of negligence, consider the reasonable person theory, and evaluate a myriad of other facts and details about the alleged loss and the associated claim. If the insurer does not believe the claimant has proven the elements of negligence, it won't pay the claim. And if the claimant is sufficiently dissatisfied with that decision, he or she will file a lawsuit. Then and only then will we all know how the courts will be viewing legal liability for spreading COVID-19. Already reports are circulating that the virus is weakening. Perhaps it's due to the warmer weather and it'll rebound in the fall when temperatures drop. Perhaps it's mutating. Only time will tell. But here is the other thing that you really need to keep in mind with respect to legal liability. Liability insurance also requires the insurance company to provide a defense. So until a claim is submitted and the insurance company can prove that 
whatever caused the loss is excluded, the insurance company has to pay for the defense, meaning they'll pay for the lawyers and all the other costs. But if a peril or a cause of loss is not covered, it's excluded, then the insurance company doesn't pay for the cost of defense. And that cost of defense portion of the liability policy is probably its most beneficial element. In the meantime, until the courts decide what's going to happen with illegal liability in the pandemic, we should be sure that we understand how insurance policies work and explain them to our clients to avoid frustrating misunderstandings. Now, let's do our weekly Q&A. In each episode, I answer questions submitted by listeners. This week's question comes from a listener who attended one of my recent insurance CE webinars. David asks, Linda, I've heard conflicting stories about insurance for my drone. Is it true that legally I have to insure it? Well, David, to my knowledge, none of the states has yet imposed insurance requirements on drones. However, I think it's a very good idea to insure yours. Whether you use a drone recreationally or for business, most need to be registered with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. In all cases, specific rules must be followed with respect to where drones can be operated and how they can be operated. This is a hot topic, and drones will be my subject on next week's episode of Taking the Mystery Out of Insurance. Once again, if you'd like to learn more about me and what I do, or you'd like to find all my podcasts, YouTube channels, and blog, visit my website at lindamchenry.com. My book about the nine fundamentals for professional success, Taking the Mystery Out of Business, is now available on Amazon. You can find it there, or you can find a link to it on my website as well. That's it for this week. Remember, clueless is a dangerous place to be. Tune in next time as we investigate some more insurance mysteries together. Mm -hmm.